0: Chapter 5. A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit www.libriVox.org. A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder by James DeMille. Chapter 5. The Torrent Sweeping Under the Mountains. The boat drifted on. The light given by the aurora and the low moon seemed to grow fainter, and as I looked behind I saw that the distant glow from the volcanic fires had become more brilliant in the increasing darkness. The sides of the channel grew steeper, until at last they became rocky precipices rising to an unknown height. The channel itself grew narrower, till from a width of two miles it had contracted to a tenth of those dimensions but with this lessening width the waters seemed to rush far more swiftly. Here I drifted helplessly and saw the gloomy, rocky cliffs sweep past me as I was hurled onward on the breast of the tremendous flood. I was in despair. The fate of Agnew had prepared me for my own, and I was only thankful that my fate, since it was inevitable, would be less appalling. Death seemed certain, and my chief thought now was as to the moment when it would come. I was prepared. I felt that I could meet it calmly, sternly, even thankfully. Far better was a death here amidst the roar of the waters than at the hands of those abhorrent beings by whose treachery my friend had fallen. As I went on, the precipices rose higher and seemed to overhang, the channel grew narrower, the light grew fainter, until at last all around me grew dark. I was floating at the bottom of a vast chasm where the sides seemed to rise precipitously for thousands of feet, where neither watery flood nor rocky wall was visible, and where, far above, I could see the line of sky between the summits of the cliffs and watch the glowing stars. And as I watched them, there came to me the thought that this was my last sight on earth, and I could only hope that the life which was so swiftly approaching its end might live again somewhere among the glittering orbs. So I thought and with these thoughts I drifted on. I cannot tell how long, until at length there appeared a vast black mass where the open sky above me terminated, and where the luster of the stars and the light of the heavens were all swallowed up in utter darkness. This, then, I thought, is the end. Here, amid this darkness, I must make the awful plunge and find my death. I fell upon my knees in the bottom of the boat and prayed. As I knelt there, the boat drew nearer, the black mass grew blacker. The current swept me on. There were no breakers. There was no phosphorescent sparkle of seething waters and no whiteness of foam. I thought that I was on the brink of some tremendous cataract a thousand times deeper than Niagara, some fall where the waters plunged into the depths of the earth and where, gathering for the terrific descent, all other movements, all dashings and writhings and twistings, were obliterated and lost in the one overwhelming onward rush. Suddenly all grew dark, dark beyond all expression. The sky above was in a moment snatched from view. I had been flung into some tremendous cavern, and there, on my knees, with terror in my heart, I waited for death. The moments passed, and death delayed to come. The awful plunge was stiff put off, and though I remained on my knees and waited long, still the end came not. The waters seemed still, the boat motionless. It was borne upon the surface of a vast stream as smooth as glass, but who could tell how deep that stream was, or how wide? At length I rose from my knees and sank down upon the seat of the boat, and tried to peer through the gloom, in vain. Nothing was visible. It was the very blackness of darkness. I listened, but heard nothing, save a deep, dull droning sound which seemed to fill all the air and make it all tremulous with its vibrations. I tried to collect my thoughts. I recalled that old story which had been in my mind before this, and which I had mentioned to Agnew. This was the notion that at each pole there is a vast opening, that into one of them all the waters of the oceans pour themselves, and, after passing through the earth, come out at the other pole, to pass about its surface in innumerable streams, It was a wild fancy which I had laughed at under other circumstances, but which now occurred to me once more, when I was overwhelmed with despair and my mind was weakened by the horrors which I had experienced, and I had a vague fear that I had been drawn into the very channel through which the ocean waters flowed in their course to that terrific unparalleled abyss. Still, there was as yet no sign whatever of anything like a descent, for the boat was on an even keel, and perfectly level as before, and it was impossible for me to tell whether I was moving swiftly or slowly, or standing perfectly still, for in that darkness there were no visible objects by which I could find out the rate of my progress. And, as those who go up in balloons are utterly insensible of motion, so was I on the calm but swift waters. At length there came into view something which arrested my attention and engrossed all my thoughts. It was faint glow that at first caught my gaze, And, on turning to see it better, I saw a round red spot glowing like fire. I had not seen this before. It looked like the moon when it rises from behind clouds and glows red and lurid from the horizon. And so this glowed, but not with the steady light of the moon, for the light was fitful and sometimes flashed into a baleful brightness, which soon subsided into a dimmer luster. New alarm arose within me, for this new sight suggested something more terrible than anything that I had thus far thought of. This, then, I thought, was to be the end of my voyage. This was my goal, a pit of fire into which I should be hurled. Would it be well, I thought, to wait for such a fate and experience such a death agony? Would it not be better for me to take my own life before I should know the worst? I took my pistol and loaded it, so as to be prepared— but hesitated to use it until my fate should be more apparent. So I sat, holding my pistol, prepared to use it, watching the light, and awaiting the time when the glowing fire should make all further hope impossible. But time passed, and the light grew no brighter. On the contrary, it seemed to grow fainter. There was also another change. Instead of shining before me, it appeared more on my left. From this, it went on changing its position until at length it was astern, All the time it continued to grow fainter, and it seemed certain that I was moving away from it rather than toward it. In the midst of this there occurred a new thought, which seemed to account for this light. This was that it arose from the same volcanoes which had illuminated the northern sky when I was ashore, and followed me still with their glare. I had been carried into this darkness through some vast opening which now lay behind me, disclosing the red volcano glow and this it was that caused the roundness and resemblance of the moon. I saw that I was still moving on away from that light as before, and that its changing position was due to the turning of the boat as the water drifted it along, now stern foremost, now sideways, and again bow foremost. From this it seemed plainly evident that the waters had borne me into some vast cavern of unknown extent which went under the mountains, a subterranean channel whose issue I could not conjecture. Was this the beginning of that course which should ultimately become a plunge deep down into some unutterable abyss? Or might I even hope to emerge again into the light of day, perhaps in some other ocean, some land of ice and frost and eternal night? But the old theory of the flow of water through the earth had taken hold of me and could not be shaken off. I knew some scientific men held the opinion that the earth's interior is a mass of molten rock and pent-up fire, and that the earth itself had once been a burning orb, which had cooled down at the surface. Yet, after all, this was only a theory, and there were other theories which were totally different. As a boy, I had read wild works of fiction about lands in the interior of the earth, with a sun at the center, which gave them the light of a perpetual day. These, I knew, were only the creations of fiction, Yet, after all, it seemed possible that the earth might contain vast hollow spaces in its interior, realms of eternal darkness, caverns in comparison with which the hugest caves on the surface were but the tiniest cells. I was now being on onto these. In that case, there might be no sudden plunge after all. The stream might run on for many thousand miles through the terrific cavern gloom, in accordance with natural laws and I might thus live and drift out in this darkness until I should die a lingering death of horror and despair. There was no possible way of forming any estimate as to speed. All was dark, and even the glow behind was fading away. Nor could I make any conjecture whatever as to the size of the channel. At the opening it had been contracted and narrow, but here it might have expanded itself to miles, and its vaulted top might reach almost to the summit of the lofty mountains. While sight thus failed me, sound was equally unavailing, for it was always the same, a sustained and unintermittent roar, a low, droning sound, deep and terrible, with no variations of dashing breakers or rushing rapids or falling cataracts. Vague thoughts of final escape came and went, but in such a situation hope could not be sustained. The thick darkness oppressed the soul and at length even the glow of the distant volcanoes, which had been gradually diminishing, grew dimmer and fainter, and finally faded out altogether. That seemed to me to be my last sight of earthly things. After this, nothing was left. There was no longer for me such a thing as sight. There was nothing but darkness, perpetual and eternal night. I was buried in a cavern of rushing waters, to which there would be no end, where I should be borne onward helplessly by the resistless tide to a mysterious and appalling doom. The darkness grew so intolerable that I longed for something to dispel it, if only for a moment. I struck a match. The air was still, and the flame flashed out, lighting up the boat and showing the black water around me. This made me eager to see more. I loaded both barrels of the rifle, keeping my pistol for another purpose, and then fired one of them. There was a tremendous report that rang in my ears like a hundred thunder volleys and rolled and reverberated far along and died away in endless echoes. The flash lighted up the scene for an instant and for an instant only, like the sudden lightning it revealed all around. I saw a wide expanse of water, black as ink, a stygian pool, but no rocks were visible, and it seemed as though I had been carried into a subterranean sea. I loaded the empty barrel and waited. The flash of light had revealed nothing, yet it had distracted my thoughts, and the work of reloading was an additional distraction. Anything was better than inaction. I did not wish to waste my ammunition, yet I thought that an occasional shot might serve some good purpose if it was only to afford me some relief from despair. And now, as I sat with the rifle in my hands, I was aware of a sound, new, exciting, different altogether from the murmur of innumerable waters that filled my ears, and in sharp contrast with the droning echoes of the rushing flood. It was a sound that spoke of life. I heard quick, heavy pantings, as of some great living thing, and with this there came the noise of regular movements in the water, and the foaming and gurgling of waves, It was as though some living, breathing creature were here, not far away, moving through these midnight waters, and with this discovery there came a new fear, the fear of pursuit. I thought that some sea monster had scented me in my boat and had started to attack me. This new fear aroused me to action. It was a danger quite unlike any other which I had ever known, yet the fear which it inspired was a feeling that roused me to action and prompted me, even though the coming danger might be as sure as death, to rise against it and resist it to the last. So I stood up with my rifle and listened with all my soul and my sense of hearing. The sounds arose more plainly. They had come nearer. They were immediately in front. I raised my rifle and took aim. Then, in quick succession, two reports thundered out with tremendous uproar and inderminable echoes but the long reverberations were unheeded in the blaze of sudden light and the vision that was revealed, for there full before me I saw, though but for an instant, a tremendous sight. It was a vast monster, moving in the waters against the stream and toward the boat. Its head was raised high, its eyes were inflamed with a baleful light, its jaws opened wide, bristled with sharp teeth, and it had a long neck joined to the body of enormous bulk with a tail that lashed all the water into foam. It was but for an instant that I saw it, and then with a sudden plunge the monster dived, while at the same moment all was dark as before. Full of terror and excitement, I loaded my rifle again and waited, listening for a renewal of the noise. I felt sure that the monster, balked of his prey, would return with redoubled fury, and that I should have to renew the conflict. I felt that the dangers of the subterranean passage and of the rushing waters had passed away and that a new peril had arisen from the assault of this monster of the deep. Nor was it this one alone that was to be dreaded. Where one was, others were sure to be. And if this one should pass by me, it would only leave me to be assailed by monsters of the same kind, and these would probably increase in number as I advanced farther into this realm of darkness. And yet, in spite of these grisly thoughts, I felt less of horror than before, for the fear which I had was now associated with action, And as I stood waiting for the onset and listening for the approach of the enemy, the excitement that ensued was a positive relief from the dull despair into which I had sunk but a moment before. Yet, though I waited for a new attack, I waited in vain. The monster did not come back. Either the flash and the noise had terrified him, or the bullets had hit him, or else in his vastness he had been indifferent to so feeble a creature as myself. But, whatever may have been the cause, he did not emerge again out of the darkness and silence into which he had sunk. For a long time I stood waiting. Then I sat down, still watchful, still listening, but without any result, until at length I began to think that there was no chance of any new attack. Indeed, it seemed now as though there had been no attack at all, but that the monster had been swimming at random without any thought of me, in which case my rifle flashes had terrified him more than his fearful form had terrified me. On the whole, this incident had greatly benefited me. It had roused me from my despair. I grew reckless and felt a disposition to acquiesce in whatever fate might have in store for me. And now, worn out with fatigue and exhausted from long watchfulness and anxiety, I sank down in the bottom of the boat and fell into a deep sleep. End of chapter 5